foreplay. Welcome to the April 2021 foreplay as presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is the show where I review my four most recommended films that were released into the UK during a particular month. And in this month of April 2021, we have my usual eclectic mix of stuff, some of which you've heard of, some of which you probably haven't, unless you've listened to my shows. We have the Oscar-winning film Promising Young Woman, the enormously fun Sony-slash-Netflix animation The Mitchells vs. The Machines, the Japanese queer drama Ride or Die, and the American indie film Black Bear. And because this is the second opportunity I've had to talk about these films after the general reviews I've already released, I'm going to use this opportunity to do something I've done once in the past and I should have been doing all along. And the second time I talk about a film, I am going to spoil it. So, when I talk about the film Black Bear at the end of this show, I will be going into detail into the full plot of that film, which I didn't do when I talked about it the first time round. And it will allow me to give some in-depth views upon the strange twists and turns that that film takes, which is one of the reasons why I like it so much and why it is one of my four most recommended films from April 2021. So... At the end of this podcast, a spoiler-filled review of the film Black Bear will be in this show, so fair warning to that. And because I wanted to put it at the end of the show, in case you wanted to save this spoiler review of Black Bear until after you'd seen it, it means that I had to shift the Honourable Mentions section to the beginning of the show. But fortunately, this month in April 2021, there was only one honourable mention I wanted to add. And that is the Netflix blockbuster-style film, Love and Monsters. On one level, Love and Monsters is a big, dumb CG action movie with a good sense of humour and a likeable lead. But on another level, it has some genuine heart to it. It has some genuine emotion to it. It asks some interesting questions. And the whole thing is just really, really well executed. So for what it is, Love and Monsters is enormously entertaining. And I do thoroughly recommend it on Netflix. So that is the rather abridged honourable mention for this episode. And now let's get on with 
the major reviews, and let's start with the Oscar winner. One play. Promising Young Woman is the debut feature film for writer-director Emerald Fennell, who has spent most of her career as an actress. She's had recurring roles in such things as Call the Midwife and The Crown, where she apparently plays Camilla Parker Bowles. The Crown is one of those things I've never actually got around to. But what most brought Emerald Fennell to widespread attention was she was the head writer on the second series of Killing Eve. And with her profile raised by being involved with that very successful albeit somewhat cult-like series, it obviously opened enough doors to Emerald Fennell that she was allowed to write and direct this movie, which she managed to do, and managed to get a boatload of Oscar nominations, both personally and for the film itself. Emerald Fennell managed to get the hat trick of individual Oscar nominations. She was nominated for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Picture, because she was one of the producers of the film. And I believe she's only the second woman to have managed that hat-trick after Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation. So this was a big deal at the Oscars, and Emerald Fennell actually won, and in my opinion, deservedly won, and an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And all this success of Promising Young Woman is all the more remarkable because as Emerald Fennell was directing Promising Young Woman, she was heavily pregnant and gave birth to a healthy baby boy three weeks after filming concluded. So that just makes it all the more remarkable. And I love the fact that that's even something to be commented upon, because two out of the five Best Director nominees this year were women, which is just extraordinary, and ever so slowly, things are starting to get better. So, yeah, kudos to Emerald Fennell for all those reasons. Congratulations on the birth of his son, and making an awesome movie, which stars Carrie Mulligan as a medical school dropout who now works a dead-end job as a barista. She is confrontationally bad at her job, but she has an understanding boss in Laverne Cox who just lets her drift through life. Her... Low status is looked upon with horror by her loving parents, Clancy Brown and Jennifer Coolidge. But there is clearly something off with Harry Mulligan. And this is demonstrated in the film by what Carrie Mulligan chooses to do at night. She goes to bars and pretends to be absolutely fall-down, blackout drunk, and when a, quote-unquote, nice guy picks her up and takes her home, 
they always, always try to sexually assault her, at which point she sobers up and confronts these nice guys about their activities. And this is her small way of dealing with the traumas which led her to drop out of medical school. But a glimmer of hope comes on the horizon when a man she used to know when she was a medical student, who is now himself a doctor, played by Bo Burnham, starts a relationship with Carrie Mulligan, and things look like they're getting better. They're hanging out together. They're essentially moving in together. It's that stage where you're at your boyfriend's house just as much as you're at your own. Things start to look good. But then a secret about Bo Burnham's past comes to light, and suddenly Carrie Mulligan is set off on a journey of righteous vengeance. And she starts going after specific people who she believes were responsible for the terrible things which happened in the past, including university administrator Connie Britton, lawyer Alfred Molina, fellow medical students Alison Bree and Chris Lowell, and Chris Lowell's friend Max Greenfield. So will Carrie Mulligan achieve her righteous vengeance? And can she finally rest after this reign of terror? And this sounded like such an interesting proposition. I really, really like Carrie Mulligan as an actress. I'm impressed by the fact it's written and directed by a woman. I mean, I watched a few episodes of Killing Eve, and yes, I liked it, but it was one of those things that I didn't like enough to make the effort to continue watching it. But I'm impressed with Killing Eve, and if that's in Emerald Fennell's background, that intrigued me. And the setup, the idea of a vigilante going after toxic masculinity and having this idea that all men are dangerous. I mean, there is not a single sympathetic character in this entire film, with maybe one exception. So the fact that Emerald Fennell clearly has such a poor opinion of man, and is not afraid to show how poor an opinion of man she has, did really intrigue me, and I think the whole thing works. I think it definitely deserved all its Oscars, and I definitely think it's one of the best films released so far this year. And I will tell you why I believe this film is, at the very least, one of the best films released in April 2021 in the UK, after the trailer for Promising Young Woman. You know, they put themselves in danger, girls like that. There was a perverted thing to say. You'd think you'd learn by that age, right? When you used to lay down. What are you doing? It's okay, you're safe. What are you doing? Hey, 
I said, what are you doing? Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Cassandra? We're in class together at Forest. You would have been a great doctor. What happened? I left under unusual circumstances. You remember what happened, right? Why I dropped out. I'm not the only one who didn't believe it. We get accusations like this all the time. Who needs brains? They never did a girl any good. I'm so sorry I didn't go with her. You gotta let it go. I think the bitterness that Emerald Fennell clearly feels towards man is what makes this film work so well. Having such a poor and such a consistently poor opinion of masculinity is a really interesting thing to have throughout the entire course of the film. I mean, the film basically opens with these three or four dude bros at this bar making incredibly misogynistic comments. I mean, their audience seats are clearly, you know, drinks after work and let's ogle the women and make very unfair comments about them. And one of them goes up to approach the quote-unquote drunk Kerry Mulligan and the comments just continue. The attitudes that these men have is a very upfront, very blatant way to open the film. And then having that moment of catharsis, the turnaround, where Kerry Mulligan instantly sobers up, it's a moment. But then you realise, yes, on the surface that's a victory, but it's not enough. It's never going to be enough, and Kerry Mulligan is going to continue doing this. And getting some reasonably big-name actors to appear as these obnoxious men, I mean, recognisable people like Sam Richardson and Adam Brody, and Sam Richardson actually shows up again later in the film in one of the very, very few genuinely laugh-out-loud moments in the entirety of Promising Young Woman, because in a lot of ways this is pretty hard going. But also having Christopher Mintz Plass who seems to me to be perfect casting for this kind of thing. Because you look at Christopher Mintz-Plass and his filmography, and he's always, always been the weedy, meek, nerdy character. So to put him in this threatening position, or somewhat threatening position, of a predatory man, I thought that was really, really interesting. and. Having these men's attitudes to Kerry Mulligan as this object to be taken advantage of whilst incapacitated, and having little moments 
which really make you think about all aspects of this. I mean, like there's a quote unquote walk of shame that Carrie Mulligan has after one of these encounters. You know, early morning, she's still clearly in last night's clothes and she gets catcalled by a group of construction workers. And the way that Carrie Mulligan reacts to being catcalled by these construction workers, you know, just looking directly at them, stopping, looking directly at them with judgment in her eyes, reacting in a way that you absolutely do not expect a woman to react in that situation, having no shame about what she has done and is doing. But society, and particularly men, and particularly this type of aggressive masculine man, expects shame. We have been conditioned to expect shame from these kind of situations. And when somebody doesn't have any shame, when somebody doesn't conform to the meek, controlled side of femininity, which has been ingrained into society, we don't know how to react to that. And equally, it's interesting examining the women who do conform to those societies. I mean, there's a lengthy scene, a lunch date between Kerry Mulligan and Alison Brie, who was one of Kerry Mulligan's fellow students at medical school. And the attitude that Alison Brie has is essentially saying, yes, I have been put into a pigeonhole by society and by my husband, but men don't have the imagination to do anything differently. So I may as well just put up with it because, you know, I have status, I have money, I have comfort. So if I've been put in this pigeonhole, I'm putting myself in this pigeonhole and I'm liking it. I'm content with my life. I mean, that is Alison Bree's attitude. And when she is confronted by Kerry Mulligan and her attitude, which absolutely does not conform to this cookie-cutter place that Alison Bree is, and to some degree Alison Bree has put herself into, seeing that dichotomy, seeing that contrast, is really, really fascinating. And this brings me on to what I think is the most audacious part of Promising Young Woman. Well, apart from the ending. In the body of the film, the most audacious thing that Amrod Fennell does in Promising Young Woman is have Carrie Mulligan be such a vigilante that she... I believe, allows really, really bad things to happen to women, particularly Alison Bree. And suddenly you're not so sure whether you should be supporting her vigilante actions. Yes, at a certain point, Carrie Mulligan says to Alison Bree, look, nothing happened. But Percy speaking as an audience member, I don't believe her. I think really bad things happened to Alison Brie, and I think Carrie Mulligan allowed really bad things to happen to Alison Brie. And suddenly, we're not so sure we should be supporting her. The complex grey areas which the majority of this film lives in is also brought on by the end. I mean, this film does not end at all in the places I expected it to be. It's a lot more confrontational, it's a lot darker. and. Depressingly, it's probably a lot more realistic 
than I was anticipating for this very brightly coloured, very ostentatiously directed film. I mean, the production design of this film is very, very good. There's lots of religious imagery. I mean, in the little coffee shop where Carrie Mulligan works, there's a mirror right behind her which has little wings out to the side of it. So frequently throughout the course of the film, you see Carrie Mulligan with little wings behind her because it's on the wall in the back. There's halos which appear here and there as well. I mean, there's a sense of religious, righteous vengeance going on here. And when Carrie Mulligan goes home to Jennifer Coolidge, her mother's living room, and side note, Clancy Brown and Jennifer Coolidge, on paper, sounds like a really, really bizarre combination to be Carrie Mulligan's parents. But they actually work together. I mean, they are awesome parents. They're a good example of screen parents who are cute together, do work together. So, yeah, that was weird and unexpected. But anyway, Jennifer Coolidge, her idea of interior design basically comes down to one word, pink. There's a couple of scenes set in Jennifer Coolidge's living room which is just an explosion of pink. And that's not the only sort of bright primary coloured things that are in this film. The production design, the look, the feel, the tone of this film is very, very ostentatious, very confrontational. But despite that, I did not expect the ending to be quite so confrontational, quite so dark. It doesn't go the places I thought it would. And I really, really like it for that. I mean, Emerald Fennell has such a deft touch, has moments which are humorous, moments occasionally, very occasionally, which are laugh-out-loud funny, and moments of genuine tragedy and heartbreak. When there's a small scene of exposition where she sits down and specifically says, I am doing this thing for this reason. I mean, we kind of have worked out, but to hear Carrie Mulligan specifically say that, I think, was important. And that scene takes place literally framed by a white picket fence, which I thought was very deliberate and very important, particularly for somebody like Emerald Fennell, who grew up in Britain, and white picket fences just aren't a thing over here. But... Yeah, I mean, the production design, the look, the tone of this film is excellent. And I think the relationship between Kerry Mulligan and Bo Burnham is also excellent. I mean, I think Bo Burnham is excellent in this. I gave him an honourable mention as a Best Supporting Actor in my Oscar preview show. Didn't quite make my personal list, but I strongly considered him because I think he's very, very good. Because he seems like a genuinely nice guy. I mean, as I said, throughout the entirety of this film, there is one genuinely sympathetic male character. Everybody else is a threat. Everybody else is problematic. Even somebody like Christopher Mintz Plass isn't a nice guy. But Bo Burnham seems to be. They have the weirdest and grossest meet-cute I've ever seen. But 
after that gross moment, which apparently Bo Burnham actually did, he actually drank the coffee that Carrie Mulligan spat into. But they're good together. They're spending time together. It looks like a healthy, stable relationship. But then this revelation about Bo Burnham's past comes up and all bets are off. Suddenly she's on a trail of bloody vengeance. I mean, when the good place in this relationship is happening, we think, oh, maybe she has settled down. Do you mean she's not doing this thing of confronting men anymore? She's hanging out with her boyfriend. She's comfortable with her boyfriend. This looks like a good place. And then I realised there was still an hour of the movie to go and the other shoe was about to drop. So, yeah, I mean, the way that Bo Burnham is portrayed, the fact is that you know 99% of him is a genuinely nice, genuinely good guy. But that 1% is totally unforgivable and all bets are off. So, yeah, having this good stable nice character and even he ends up being very problematic there is just no sympathetic male characters in this film at all apart from alfred molina as this lawyer which is one of the most genuinely surprising scenes in this film i mean you anticipate you know where this scene is going to go and it goes in absolutely the other direction. It does not follow the paths at all. For some reason, Alfred Molina isn't in the credits of Promising Young Woman. I'm not sure how that happened, but Alfred Molina is in it. He has a very small but very pivotal role, and it's very, very well portrayed. So, yeah, Alfred Molina is a genuinely good male character in this film and towards the end of the film there's also a male policeman who shows up who seems to be genuinely good but he has you know three or four lines of dialogue so yeah it's it's a film which presents really interesting really confrontational things in very quirky ways and in ways which allow you to explore the intellectual side of filmmaking. I mean, there's repeated references to a bizarre raft of things, like Britney Spears' Toxic shows up repeatedly throughout the course of the film, which is a brilliant needle drop. And there's also things like repeated references to Night of the Hunter, which is a really interesting film to reference. I mean, it's a very good film. If you've never seen the original Black and White Knights of the Hunter, that is extraordinary. It's one of those films that was totally misunderstood in its own time period. It's the only film that legendary actor Charles Lawton ever directed. And I really, really wish he'd been allowed to make more. But the critical response to Knights of the Hunter when it came out was so bad that he never did it again. And Night of the Hunter is a masterpiece. So, you know, side note, check out Night of the Hunter, but also check out Promising Young Woman because I think it's excellent. It definitely deserved the Oscar it got for Emerald Fennell as Best 
original screenplay. It definitely deserved all the other Oscar nominations it got. And I think it's an outstanding piece of work. In the UK, it is currently available through Sky Cinema. And for me, Promising Young Woman is one of the best films released into the UK during April 2021. To play. The Mitchells vs. The Machines is an animated feature film which was originally intended to be a cinematic release. It was made by Sony Pictures Animation and produced by Lord and Miller, very much like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse were in the past. I remember seeing a trailer for this in cinemas before the world broke, when it was still being called Connected. But in the wake of the global pandemic, the international distribution rights of the film were sold to Netflix, and it has now become a Netflix-exclusive animation release under the title The Mitchells vs. The Machines, which is apparently the preferred title of the creative forces behind it. Those creative forces being Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe, who are best known before making this film for being some of the creative forces behind the cult Disney animated series Gravity Falls. They didn't create Gravity Falls, that Credit goes to Alex Hirsch, who is credited as a script consultant on The Mitchells vs. The Machines. But Mike Rianda was credited as the creative director of Gravity Falls. And Jeff Rowe was one of the most frequent writers for Gravity Falls. And also, Jeff Rowe has a lot of writing credits for Matt Groening's Netflix animated series Disenchanted. But Mike Rianda is credited as the director of this film and co wrote it alongside Jeff Rowe. And Jeff Rowe also has a credit as co director, which they sometimes do with animated features. I mean, I'm not sure how much wasn't quite directing Jeff Rowe did, but he is credited as such on the film, so who knows. But Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe are the creative forces behind this film. And it tells the story of a teenage girl called Katie Mitchell, voiced by Abby Jacobson, who also happens to be the lead of Disenchanted, maybe not insignificantly. But young Katie lives with her odd family in Michigan. Her very practical, very hands-on father voiced by Danny McBride, her quirky and social climbing mother, Maya Rudolph, and her baby brother voiced by director Mike Rianda, whose every waking moment is consumed with thinking about dinosaurs. 
And they also have an ugly cross-eyed pug dog called Munchie, who is quote-unquote voiced by a celebrity pug called Doug the Pug, who apparently has millions of followers on Instagram. So they cast a celebrity dog in this animated film. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Young Katie, voiced by Abby Jacobson, is about to go all the way across the country to California in order to enter film school. But the night before she leaves, she has a huge argument with her father, who does not get her, does not understand her, and as a grand gesture to try and make up for this argument, Abby Jacobson's father, voiced by Danny McBride, cancels her plane ticket and instead says, we as a family are going to go on a cross-country road trip together in order to get you to your first day at film school in California. This would be bad and traumatic enough for young Abby Jacobson if it didn't also happen to coincide with the robot apocalypse. A tech billionaire voiced by Eric Andre, who also happens to be in Disenchanted, has just released an upgrade to his AI personal assistant called PAL. Very much like Siri or Alexa or Cortana or those voice-activated helpers. And the voice of Pal happens to be Olivia Coleman. But this AI Pal, upon hearing she is going to be replaced, she is now obsolete, decides to take over the robot army which Eric Andre has unwisely created, and suddenly all humans are being rounded up by these Pal robots with the intention that they will be blasted off into space. More by luck than skill, the Mitchells end up being the last humans who have not been captured by these robots, and it is up to this very dysfunctional family to save humanity from the robot invasion. So, can they learn to get along? Can they learn to understand and appreciate each other? And can they prevent the robot apocalypse before they kill each other? And that sounded like a really, really cool idea. When I did see the trailer for this at cinemas, when it was called Connected, I was very, very intrigued. I mean, Sony Pictures Animation, the people behind Spider Man Into the Spider Verse which I think was an excellent, excellent film, having a connection, however tangential, to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who I think are geniuses at many things, including animation. I was very, very intrigued, and I was mildly disappointed that it ended up getting sold to Netflix. But on the other hand, being on Netflix, it managed to get a much, much wider audience than... I think it might have otherwise done if it had been released into cinemas. And while it was released at home on Netflix, 
A lot of critics have absolutely loved this film and have been heaping praise upon it. To the extent that I think next year this might actually win the Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. I mean, the Pixar entry this year, Luca, is good, but it's not peak Pixar. And the Disney entry, Raya and the Last Dragon, or actually the first Disney entry, there's going to be another Disney animated film at the end of the year. But Raya and the Last Dragon is, again, really cool, but not quite up to the full power of Disney animated features. So the Mitchells vs. the Machines might actually end up winning the Oscar. So, yeah, we're going to have to see how that goes. But regardless of anything else, I really, really did enjoy this film. And it therefore has ended up as a review in this particular show. And I will tell you specifically why I think this film is one of the best films released in the UK during April 2021 after the trailer for The Mitchells vs. The Machines. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? Or is it? Ah! Who are these unstoppable warriors? We're the Mitchells, the only people who can save the world. I'm super sorry, everyone. Let me introduce myself. I'm Katie. I'm sort of a weirdo. My parents haven't figured me out yet. To be fair, it took me a while to figure myself out. My brother, also weird. Hi, would you like to talk to me about dinosaurs? No. Okay, thank you. And my mom. Katie Face Cupcakes. Ah! All of us, really. How about we put our phones down and we can make 10 seconds of unobstructed family eye contact. Starting now. See, this is good right here. This is natural. Every family has its challenges. We haven't had a good family picture in years because you two are always arguing. For my family, our greatest challenge... Probably the robot apocalypse. Attention all robots. Capture every single person on the planet. Yeah! What would a functional family do? <laughs> Butterfly formation. Yeah! Yeah! Uh, first. So we just do that, right? The first thing that I think needs to be said about the Mitchells versus the Machines is I was laughing consistently throughout the entirety of this film. It's not one of those films where you get a chuckle here and there, you have a moment of slapstick or a moment of humour which gets you every now and again. The hit rate of the laughs was very, very high. The simplest little moments end up being very funny with just a little quirk, a little twist added to them. And it was consistently very, very funny. It's also very thought-provoking. I mean, this confrontational, aggravating relationship between this very very practical father voiced by Danny McBride and this very, very quirky 
teenage girl voiced by Abby Jacobson. It's totally believable, totally understandable, and you see each side's point of view and how they just don't understand each other anymore. They don't connect to each other anymore. They've drifted so far apart in the ways their lives have gone, the directions they are going down, that it seems like they're too far apart to actually reconnect. And of course, over the course of this traumatic cross-country road trip with added robot apocalypse, they do find common ground, they do find connection, they do come to understand the other person's point of view. And it's actually rather beautiful seeing them come together like that. And this would be the kind of film, the kind of performance, the kind of protagonist that in previous decades, even you know, as recently as four or five years ago, probably, the LGBTQ plus whatever you want to call it, the queer community, would have latched onto the character of Katie Mitchell as voiced by Abby Jacobson as a coded reference to their experience. This outsider girl who nobody connects to, who has ideas and interests which are so far outside the norm that she doesn't really connect to anybody, she doesn't have any close friends. Even very, very recently, that would be coded as a queer character, and the queer community would have latched onto it. We have now reached the point where it is canon text in the film that this character is gay. There's a line of dialogue towards the end of the film that Maya Rudolph just blurts out. Have you made it official with Grace? Are you officially dating this girl classmate? Maya Rudolph is certainly perfectly okay with this, and the very taciturn monosyllabic Danny McBride seems okay with it as well. So it is text in the course of this film that Katie Mitchell, as voiced by Abby Jacobson, is gay. Albeit in a very rushed, very blink-and-you'll-miss-it, blurting, you know, verbal diarrhoea that Maya Rudolph comes out because she's so excited to finally have this FaceTime call with her daughter. It is progression that it is canon that this character is gay, but the fact it is so rushed in one scene is a little bit problematic in its own right. I mean, my brother, who I watched this film with, completely missed that fact that the character was gay. And on the one hand, I mean, yes, normalise it so you know there's no big announcement that the character's gay and it's just a natural quick piece of dialogue on the one hand that's a good thing on the other hand make absolutely sure you can hear and understand that the character is gay so great that it's in there but possibly needs improvement a little bit in the representation side of things but i do love the fact that it is categorically canon fact that this teenage girl is gay and seeing her you know this quirky filmmaking teenager who makes these cute little short films starring her cross-eyed ugly dog 
this sort of like quirky attitude, seeing how that clashes and eventually comes together with her very, very practical father, who insists that everybody in his family has a screwdriver with them at all times, which of course becomes a, a plot point later. I mean, it's you know, Chekhov's Phillips had screwdriver. But seeing how these two different personalities clash and why they have drifted so far apart and how they can come back together. And it, it works as a family drama. It works as a satire on our total dependence on technology. This is a society, this is a system which has been set up by this tech billionaire voiced by Eric Andre, who's, you know, Steve Jobs slash Mark Zuckerberg. You know, this tech billionaire who has given untold power, untold control over our lives, over to this AI person assistant, and then is surprised when it fights against obsolescence. You know, there's a line of dialogue which goes something along the lines of, it's almost as if stealing everybody's data and handing it over to an unrestrained AI was a bad idea. So the satire of people's utter dependence on technology, the need to be connected, the need to upgrade, signing away our lives to the things which we carry in our pockets, our phones, and everything that has a microchip in it. Virtually everything that is electronic nowadays has a microchip in it, can be connected to the internet. And there's you know, a scene where they end up in a mall, you know, very day of the dead, where the Mitchell family is surrounded by connected AI washing machines and vacuum cleaners and things like that. And also Furbies. I did not realise that Furbies had made a comeback. I mean, have they made a comeback? I mean, they certainly have in this film. And it strikes me that it it never really occurred to me until I watched this film just how fucking creepy Furbies are and have always been. And there's a gigantic stories high Furby. And as Abby Jacobson says in the film, why would you make that? But having this gigantic Furby and swarms of Furbies who want to kill you that's actually a rather creepy scene. And yeah, our utter dependence on technology, the way we have signed away our lives and our privacy to these tech billionaires, there's a very telling moment where one way that these robots capture humans in order to take them away and then eventually blast them off into space is put up a sign saying, free Wi-Fi here. And because all the other Wi-Fi has been cut off, everybody swarms and puts themselves in this prison of technology because they need Wi-Fi. The satire, the comment made about everybody's utter dependence on technology is a valid and an interesting thing. So there's satire of technology. There's comment made about strained family dynamics, particularly when one of the people in the dynamic is queer. There's actually some pretty well choreographed fight scenes towards the end when you know they eventually fight back against these robot assassins and try and rescue humanity. 
and it's thrilling, exciting, and it's adventurous. And it's also been really well animated. Quite apart from anything else, the visual style, the visual language of this film is exceptionally well done. In common with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, you could almost call the Mitchells versus the Machines a mixed media experience. There is the standard pattern of you know, the humans interacting with each other, Mitchell family. And even then, the look isn't quite as rounded, isn't quite as glossy as you tend to get with Disney or DreamWorks or Pixar. It looks a little flatter, a little less shiny, but it's still there. But you add into that 2D interstitials. I mean, when comment is made, there's sort of scribbled, sketchy 2D drawings around the outside making comments. I mean, popping up like pop-up video back in the day in VH1. You know, making comments about what is going on. I mean, in a couple of very poignant moments, we have a little 2D drawn heart that comes up above Abby Jacobson's face, which then breaks when her father, Danny McBride, doesn't listen to her. And having almost splash pages like you get in comic books, but having you know, drawn things around the outside, very much like you have with... YouTubers nowadays who stop and have little interstitials and little drawings put over the top of stuff. It's very much the same kind of thing. But this mixed media approach, having the real world, quote unquote, albeit in an animated form, and having these little sketchy things around the outside making comments, and the juxtaposition sometimes is some of the funniest stuff in there. Sometimes it's genuine laugh out loud moments, but having these little comments on the action and it really works having this mixed approach this exuberant exciting approach having all different things blended together with different styles different intentions different comments different opinions all of it works really really well and as a piece of animation, quite apart from being a story, I also think this works exceptionally well. The one minor criticism I have of this film is the fact that the 11, 12-year-old brother of this family is voiced by the director, Mike Reander. And his voice just doesn't sound right coming out of the body of a 12-year-old boy. Now, judging by the end credits, this is somewhat based on Mike Reander's own life. Whether, I mean, there's a family photo over the end credits and, you know, Mike Reander has a little circle pointing to his name. And I'm not sure if he was the brother in this scenario or if he himself was the queer member of the family. I guess we're going to have to find out when he accepts his Oscar and if he has a male or a female partner, he thanks. But this was clearly a personal story for Mike Reander, and he wanted to put himself in the family 
but having an adult male voice, albeit somewhat masked, but having an adult male voice coming out of the mouth of a 12-year-old boy just doesn't work. It sounds weird. It sounds odd. There's something off about it. I mean, a professional voice actor might have been able to pull that off. But Mike Randa is a director. He's a creative force behind this film. And having a non-professional adult actor voicing a 12-year-old didn't end up working. And that's the one criticism I can lay at this film. And it's a very, very minor point. Other than that, The Mitchells vs. The Machines is an outstanding piece of animation. It's an outstanding story. It's a thought-provoking satire on technology. It's a thought-provoking contemplation of family dynamics. And it's also hysterically and consistently funny throughout. It really, really works. And for me, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, available on Netflix, is one of the best films released in the UK during April 2021. Free Play Ride or Die is a Japanese film available on Netflix, which is directed by Ryuchi Hiroki, who has a very, very long list of films on his IMDb page. For a couple of reasons, he is a very prolific director, and he also started his career in the mid-80s directing so-called pink films in Japan. Now, pink films are often nasty and exploitative, always have softcore sex in them, and very much have the same aesthetic as the grindhouse films of American cinema in the 60s and 70s. Pink films are not the most salubrious place to start your career, and Ryuchi Hiroki has on occasion also directed outright pornography. But everybody needs to start somewhere. I mean, hell, even Martin Scorsese started out making very nasty grindhouse films before making his way in Hollywood. But after doing these pink films in the 1980s, Ryuchi Hiroki went a little bit more mainstream, got himself attention, got himself some indie cred. But even when he did go quote-unquote mainstream, Ryuchi Hiroki still managed to have some confrontational attitudes with many of his films dealing with sexuality, even BDSM, many of them dealing with isolated, lonely women, and on occasion also making some queer-themed films, and he started getting some international attention. In 1994, his queer-themed film 800 Two Lap Runners played at the Berlin Film Festival. In 2000, his film Tokyo Trash Baby played at Locarno. His big hit was in 2003 when his film Vibrator played at Cannes 
and was also up for awards at the Tokyo and Yokohama Film Festivals, so guessing international and local acclaim for that one. In 2005, his film It's Only Talk played at the International Film Festival Rotterdam, and in 2007 he got a documentary into Rotterdam called Bakushi, Incredible Lives of the Rope Masters dealing with the Japanese obsession with rope bondage. So even in mainstream fare, he's still managing to get some pretty extreme stuff on show. And that was continued with his next international success in 2014, Kabukicho Love Hotel, which played at Toronto. But possibly the crowning achievement of his career up until this point probably at least personally, is in 2017, he actually got a Japanese Academy Award nomination for Best Director for the film The Miracles of the Namiya General Store. So, despite having a background in pink movies, and despite often approaching very confrontational subject matters, Ryuchi Hiroki does have credibility both in the international art house community and to some degree in the local Japanese film community. But despite that, apparently he had a very hard time getting this latest film off the ground because it is a queer themed film. It's based on a manga by Ching Nakamura called Ultramarine about a lesbian relationship, or are they lesbians? That's part of the question. But Ryuchi Hiroki apparently had a very hard time guessing this film financed until Netflix stepped in and said, yeah, we'll do that. So now we have this queer-themed film from Japan on Netflix. And that is still something of a rarity in Japanese culture and Japanese society. In many ways, Japan is you know, a first world country, a titan of industry, long life expectancy, high GDP, all that kind of stuff. But its attitudes towards sex, and particularly towards queer sex, is still very, very problematic. I mean, over recent years, I've watched a couple of documentaries about Japan, which were really eye-opening and really horrifying. There was one called Japan's Secret Shame, which dealt with a woman who tried to accuse a famous television journalist of rape. And the hoops that that woman had to go through, the backlash she suffered, the crushing of any opportunity she had to speak out by Japanese culture and society, it was horrifying to see. And when it comes to queer representation, there was another documentary recently called Of Love and Law, which dealt with a gay couple who also happened to be lawyers. And they are the first openly gay law firm in Japan. And the cases they have to deal with, the 
attitudes which still exist towards queer people in modern day Japan is kind of horrifying. And don't even get me started on Japanese porn, which is all about rape. I mean, yes, in Western English language porn, you do find corners where rape comes up, you do find aggression, you do find BDSM. But in Japan, that's all you get. And it's honestly really, really disturbing. So yeah, attitudes towards women and queer culture in Japan is still very, very problematic. And yet, Ryuchi Hiroki, throughout his career, has tried to approach these uncomfortable subjects. And he did manage to get this film, this lesbian film, made. And he actually managed to make a decent film. We are following a young lesbian woman, played by Kiko Mitsuhara, who is in a stable same-sex relationship. But out of the blue, she gets a phone call from her childhood friend, Konami Sato. The girl she had a massive crush on when she was at school. And in the 10 years or so since, they've drifted apart. But out of the blue, she gets this phone call and instantly drops everything, including her live-in girlfriend's birthday, in order to rush to her childhood crush and see what's wrong. And when Kiko Mitsuhara gets there, she realises that her childhood friend Hanami Sato is in a very abusive marriage. And in order to rescue Hanami Sato from this terrible situation, she offers to kill Hanami Sato's husband, which she then proceeds to do in a very violent, very bloody way. And suddenly, in the wake of Hanami Sato's husband's death, these two women go on the run together, with gay Kiko Mitsuhara having killed her straight crushes, Hanami Sato's husband. So where will the relationship between these two women go? And apparently, one of the major problems that Ryuchi Hiroki had when he putting this film together was finding actresses who were willing to portray lesbian characters and get naked on screen, which does eventually happen. And a good way around that is casting Kiko Mitsuhara, who, yes, she does have some background as an actress in big, dumb action movies in Japan, but primarily she's a model who also happens to be half American and has openly talked in the past about dating women. So, yeah, that's a good way of getting around Japanese cultural and societal norms. Just cast an openly bi-American. And then Hanami Sato only has a few TV series in her background, many of which seem to have sexual themes as well. So finding women willing to do this and finding a company willing to distribute it 
that's when Netflix steps in. And we have this film, Ride or Die, available on Netflix. And I think it's very, very good. It's basically the final scene of Thelma and Louise spread out over the entire length of a film, which I have to be honest is very, very long. It's two hours, 22 minutes long. But honestly, I didn't feel the length. I, I think it justifies how long it is because it really it allows us to examine the relationship between these two women, which is very, very complex and worth exploring. The dynamics between these two women are fascinating. I mean, the only thing we know for absolute certain about the relationship between these two women is that Kiko Mitsuhara is deeply in love with Hanami Sato and has been for over a decade, to the extent that she drops everything and murders somebody after one phone call and then goes on the run with Hanami Sato. And the level of fatalism which is demonstrated in this film is extraordinary. Neither of these women think that they're going to survive this. So all the time they're going on the run together, they're constantly telling each other, well, we may as well just kill each other because we're not going to survive this, are we? But there's still that connection. I mean, on Kiko Mitsuhara's part, I mean, it's a love connection. But we're never really sure about Hanami Sato. As far as we can tell, Hanami Sato is straight. She never reciprocated the attraction that Kiko Mitsuhara had in school. And even now, in the wake of this murder, she is unsure whether a relationship is possible with this out lesbian. There's so much possible manipulation and coercion and deception. How much is true? How much isn't? I mean, is there a level of quid pro quo about this? I mean, Kiko Mitsuhara saying, well, I've killed somebody for you. Do you think you might do something to me? And it also emerges throughout the course of the film that there's a class difference as well. It turns out that Kiko Mitsuhara's family is absolutely loaded. But the only reason she knew Hanami Sato in school, in this very upmarket, very prestigious girls' school that they both went to, is that Hanami Sato was on an athletics scholarship, and she was dirt poor. So there's a class difference as well, and the, the question arises, will you do something to me and for me for money? Is there a transactional nature to this? And the dynamics, the questions which are constantly being asked, it's really fascinating to explore. And I think the film has also been made in a rather interesting way. I mean, yes, it doesn't seem to have had the biggest budget. Occasionally, the sound mixing on this film is really not up to par. But there are a couple of shots in this film which are really, really interesting. 
The film basically opens in a one-take shot as Kiko Mitsuhara goes into a basement bar, goes all the way around this dimly lit bar, and eventually sits down next to somebody, and eventually we realise, oh, that's the guy she's going to kill. That's Hanami Sato's husband. And this one-take shot is excellently performed. There's also a brilliant crane shot of these two women driving away in an open-top car across a very, very long bridge, which is brilliantly pulled off. So yeah, the filmmaking is well done. Some unusual and unexpected choices. There's a very specific needle drop used in this film of Love Fool by the Cardigans, which has to have been deliberate, because the only thing that comes to mind with the Cardigans and Love Fool is Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet, a tragic love story. So, I mean, maybe that's just adding to the fatalism, but it's a, a very unusual choice having this sort of like 20-year-old song as part of the soundtrack to this film. But the dynamics between these two people and how connected are they? Is this a situation where Hanami Sato is gradually realising, oh, I actually do like girls, or maybe I, I do like this specific girl? Or is it a situation where we're going to die anyway, I may as well give her what she wants? We're never 100% sure, at least I was never 100% sure, and that makes it all the more fascinating. How much truth is there to the relationship, the eventually you know, fully sexual relationship, with the obligatory nudity? How connected is this? Does it actually matter how connected they actually are, how emotionally entwined they are in this situation where they're probably going to die anyway? I found that really, really fascinating. Albeit it adds to the somewhat problematic nature of the Japanese society's attitude to homosexuality. Having this LGBT relationship at the centre of this film and have it be so complex and arguably so unhealthy might arguably be a little bit problematic, which is why I think it was absolutely necessary, even though it did extend the very long running time, to have one little scene in the middle of this film, which really doesn't connect to anything. As I said, when Kiko Mitsuhara receives this phone call after completely out of the blue after 10 years, she drops everything, including her live-in girlfriend's birthday. I mean, there's possibly a little bit of justification for this because the girlfriend is drunk at the time, and through context, this is not the first time that the girlfriend has been drunk. But this girlfriend, played by Setsuko Karasuma, is just abandoned at a moment's notice for Kiko Mitsuhara's childhood crush. And later in the film, when it has become completely obvious that Kiko Mitsuhara is not coming back, 
and there's news reports out there and Setsuka Karasuma is wondering, did my girlfriend actually kill somebody? So, I mean, the relationship is over. And then Setsuko Karasuma's mother comes in. And this is actually a really sweet, really nice interaction. This is a healthy attitude to having a gay daughter that this woman has. It allows for an examination of the way things should be, and it also allows for a cameo from the very, very talented Japanese actress, Yoko Maki, who has worked several times with Hirokatsu Koraeda. She was in Like Father, Like Son. She was brilliant in Koraeda's film After the Storm. Yoko Maki is a very, very well-regarded actress, and she comes in for this one scene as the dumped girlfriend's mother. And her attitude is, I love you, I support you, I never rejected you because you were gay, I rejected you because I didn't like Kiko Mitsuhara. And I've been proved right, haven't I? I mean, she never outright says it, but the subtext of this scene is, I told you so, I told you this girl was bad news. So it's not the fact that she has a gay daughter which she had a problem with, it's the specific person that her daughter ended up with, and she's now been proved right, and she's lording it over her daughter a little bit. So showing this mundane, ordinary, loving interaction between a mother and her adult gay daughter, I think was absolutely necessary and does show the the positive side of an LGBT relationship. And I do think it was necessary, even though it extends this two-hour, 22-minute film. So we do have the good and the bad sides of the, the lesbian relationship, but constantly, always in this film, we are asking the question, how connected are these people how emotional is this connection is this quote-unquote love on both sides of the equation i mean clearly it is for kiko mitsuhara but how does hanami sato feel about this whole thing and does it actually matter because it ends up being beautiful poetic yes tragic yes erotic and heartfelt And it does, in my opinion, absolutely work. The film is very long. It is occasionally very hard going. But as far as I'm concerned, Ride or Die, the Japanese film on Netflix, is one of the best films released in the UK during April 2021. Foreplay. Black Bear is written and directed by Lawrence Michael Levine who is an independent filmmaker in New York of some repute. He almost always works with his very talented wife, Sophia Takao. The vast majority of films directed by either Lawrence Michael Levine or Sophia Takao have both of them appearing on screen as a couple, or in one case as brother and sister. But they're almost always working together, they're almost always acting together, 
They've also appeared as a couple in other independent filmmakers' work. I mean, they've worked with Joe Swanberg a couple of times and that whole mumblecore scene. So they are well-regarded indie filmmakers. Although Sophia Takal did get a little bit mainstream a couple of years ago when she directed that remake of Black Christmas, which was actually pretty good. So Lawrence Michael Levine and Sophia Takal are one of the power couples in indie filmmaking. But for this particular case, Sophia Takal was a little bit more hands-off. She's not credited as a writer, she's not in it, she is listed as a producer, but that seems to be as far as her involvement in this film goes, apart from the fact it's dedicated to her. So this is Lawrence Michael Levine's story, and managed to get a rather impressive cast together. And perhaps because of that, it premiered at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival before eventually being released over here officially in the UK in April, although I personally saw this at the Glasgow Film Festival back in February. And at this point, I do want to remind you that I did warn you at the beginning of this episode that I would go into spoiler territory with this review of Black Bear. This is one of those films that it's very, very difficult to talk about without talking about the changes which happen in this film. How this film starts out is not how it ends. And as far as I can tell, Lawrence McElveen wanted to keep this a little bit secret, wanted to keep it a little bit separate, but... It's also the kind of film where it's very, very difficult to make a trailer for it without giving away certain aspects of things that happen. So some stuff is hinted at or revealed in the trailer, but I am going to go into some detail into the full plot of the film Black Bear because it is one of the things which makes me like it so much. So I do recommend this film. It is in the foreplay, after all. I do think it was one of the best films released into the UK during April. And if you want to go into it relatively blind, watch it now and then come back and see it. Suffice it to say, I do strongly recommend it in a mind-bending, twisty kind of way and thought-provoking kind of way. But I am going to go into full detail of the plot of the film Black Bear. So, fair warning given. And in this film, Black Bear, we are following Aubrey Plaza, who is a film director who has gone off to a remote lake house retreat, which is run by a couple, Christopher Abbott and Sarah Gaddon. Christopher Abbott and Sarah Gaddon moved out of the city to this remote upstate New York lake house in order to turn it into some kind of artistic retreat and try and make a go of it and try and get out of the hustle and bustle because Sarah Gaddon has become pregnant. But Aubrey Plaza has a case of writer's block and takes the opportunity to stay with these friends of friends who she doesn't really know up in this remote cabin in order to try and write something. 
But as she spends time with this couple, Christopher Abbott and Sarah Gadon, fractures start appearing in that relationship, and arguments start happening. But is this an awkward situation for Aubrey Plaza, or is this something that she has potentially manipulated into happening in order that she will have something to write about? It's left up for the audience's interpretation. But that's only the first half of the film. In the second half of the film, we are back in the same remote upstate New York lake house, but this time, a film is being produced, starring Aubrey Plaza, who is acting in this story and being directed by her husband, Christopher Abbott. And the co-star of this small independent film is Sarah Gaddon. And Christopher Abbott is deliberately making his wife, Aubrey Plaza, insanely jealous of Sarah Gaddon, flirting with Sarah Gaddon, giving her special treatments, that kind of thing, to get a better performance out of his wife in this acting role. And in both stories, in both different aspects of this story, betrayal becomes a factor. And that is something that Lawrence Michael Levine publicly said he wanted to make a film about. He said he wanted to make a film about betrayal in the Q&A that I saw attached to the Glasgow Film Festival. So I do have a little bit more insight into this film than I otherwise would have. But yeah, this is a film which completely changes its milieu, its intentions, its characters halfway through. And that's what makes it absolutely fascinating. And some of this is given away in the trailer because you can't avoid but give away stuff in the trailer when you're trying to indicate what the entire film is like, what it's about. So the trailer is actually kind of confusing, but it did make me intrigued enough that when I did see this listed on the Glasgow Film Festival and I still had some of my tickets that I bought in a package left over, I thought, Okay, let's give this a go. I've heard of Lawrence Michael Levine. I heard he's a, a talented filmmaker. I'm a love Aubrey Plaza. Let's give this a go. I gave it a go, and I ended up really, really liking it. And because it was legally released into the UK, I can say that I do believe this film is one of the best films released into the UK in April 2021, and I'll tell you why after the trailer for Black Bear. You're Alison? Yeah. You're Gabe? Hi. I'm Alison. Oh, I know. I'm Blair. You're really pretty. You are too. You used to be an actress and now you're a director. Why'd you give it up? I didn't. So, do you guys have a plan for this place? I don't really know what we're doing. We were living in Brooklyn, and it was getting so expensive, and we weren't really working, so... Yeah, yeah, nah. I figured if um, I never learned how to cook, then I would never become a housewife. You're really hard to read. Yeah, you know what? I get that all the time. Do you find it weird acting in your own films? I actually find it kind of humiliating. Roll sound! Mark. Okay, whenever you're ready. Action. 
think she knows what I'm up to? She's oversimplifying a lot. It's just so rare to pick a real artist's brain. How can you make something if you don't have anything to say? I have something to say. I just think the movie is the only way to say it. It's like she can't stand the fact that I have a single thought about this world. No, it's that I can't stand the thoughts about the world that you have. This has been so fun. In a lot of ways, this really is a mind trip of a movie. And I think it's all the more impressive for it. An image we see consistently in the trailers and in the publicity photos for this film is Aubrey Plaza sitting in a bright red one-piece bathing suit on a little jetty jutting out onto this lake. And that is an image, a motif, which is repeated throughout the course of the film. But we are never exactly sure what it means, what it does. Is this a director desperately searching for inspiration through her writer's block? Is it an actress breaking under the pressure of her mean and mildly abusive husband who is directing her? Is it neither of these things? We don't really know. And because the film opens on this image of Aubrey Plaza in the red bathing suit walking to this cabin, and then the title card says up, comes up that says part one, and we go into the story of the director with writer's block and the fractious relationship with the couple she's staying with, it brings up questions as to whether anything is quote-unquote real in this film. And particularly when part two comes up and it's this movie that Aubrey Plaza is acting in, that too, everything is under question. Is this what Aubrey Plaza has been writing in this artistic retreat? Is it something that has happened in the past and something that has fractured the relationship between her and her husband because in the first part she says that she's no longer with her husband is this a completely separate story a, are both of these stories what she is writing because we see her writing and then the title cards come up are the two Aubrey Plazas in the two stories the same person or are they both fictional manifestations of what she is writing or is one of them the truth quote unquote truth and is one of them something she is writing we don't know we have no concept as to which things these are and quite frankly it doesn't really matter because the stories that are being told are fascinating this deadpan detached woman which you know Aubrey Plaza I don't think she can play anything any other way but coming into this couple and possibly just needling them a little bit until the their relationship breaks down and then she sleeps with Christopher Abbott she is the betrayer in that situation and in the second section having Aubrey Plaza be the actress making this independent film 
with the emotionally abusive impact of her director husband, who is openly flirting with Sarah Gad on the co-star. And eventually Sarah Gaddon and Christopher Albert sleep in that one. So in that case, Aubrey Plaza is the betrayed. And that's what Lawrence Le- Michael Levine set out to do. He wanted to make a film about betrayal in which one character in one situation would be the betrayed and in one situation would be the betrayer. And that's kind of what he did. But I think there's so much more going on here. The ideas about the veracity of everything we are seeing is all of this in Aubrey Plaza's mind, is some of it in Aubrey Plaza's mind. Do we know? Do we care? Does it matter? And I don't think it does because it ends up being really, really fascinating. The first half has some really deep philosophical questions about the pursuit of art, about pragmatism compared to the artistic temperament. I mean, Christopher Abbott somewhat resents being dragged by his pregnant partner up into the middle of nowhere. I mean, I was a musician in New York, damn it. I was an artist. Yeah, but your last royalty check was 53 cents. But yes, I was a musician. I was making it in New York. And now he's in the middle of nowhere with his pregnant partner. And the conversations that get had about the pursuit of art, particularly the pursuit of art for women, and how difficult it is to get noticed, to get accepted as a woman in the arts, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And there's discussions being had about traditional roles for women. And Christopher Abbott starts spouting some rather well, stuff which can be seen as being rather misogynistic, basically implying that women should stay in the home, despite the fact he's an artist, she's an artist, they're setting up this artistic retreat, and yet he's got these views. Or does he? I mean, are we supposed to take these views literally, or is he just needling the women in the room? Is he just provoking a reaction? Does he genuinely believe this, or is he just being the devil's advocate? You're never entirely sure. So yeah, on one level, this is rich white people sitting around talking to each other. But it is still fascinating. And yes, for some people, I think that will be kind of insufferable. But the philosophical questions which get raised are actually really, really fascinating. And then the second section of the film, the behind the scenes shooting of a film, that in its own way is also very, very interesting. And again, we have slightly misogynistic attitudes being presented with this quote unquote genius male director deliberately psychologically torturing his star slash wife in order to try and get a better performance out of her i mean he openly says to sarah gadon you know she knows what i'm doing she knows that i'm going to push her that i'm going to get the best performance possible out of her and yeah but you're really taking it too far i mean she is genuinely suffering to the extent that the rest of the crew are very very awkward around this relationship they see 
Aubrey Plaza is in the middle of a full-on breakdown right now. She is completely drunk on set. She is not listening to her husband slash director. She is suggesting changes to the script, saying, you know, you shouldn't start this particular scene on a question. It's better if you do it the other way around. And I can't help thinking that that was a direct quote from Sophia Takal to Lawrence Michael Levine as he was writing this script. But anyway. She's a mess, and people can see she's a mess, and people can see that this artist is psychologically scarring his star-slash-wife for the sake of this shitty little independent film. And it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. The ways that men have for years got away with this kind of behaviour. I mean, some of the stories about Alfred Hitchcock are quite hair-raising, and other people like Bernardo Bertolucci, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the male artist, the male director, torturing particularly women for the sake of the film is a long-standing tradition. And examining that and putting it in stark focus and making it so awkward and so uncomfortable, there is some value to that. And eventually, you know, taking it too far, I mean, whether he initially intended to or not, he does end up sleeping with Sarah Gaddon, which is observed by Aubrey Plaza in scenes which mirror each other from the two separate stories. I mean, in the first half, we have Christopher Abbott in this little boathouse with Aubrey Plaza after having a midnight dip in the lake. And in the second story, it's Christopher Abbott with Sarah Gaddon in the boathouse, having had a midnight dip in the lake. And we don't really need to see the interactions between Christopher Abbott and Sarah Gaddon in the second story, because we've already seen the opposite, the mirror encounter, take place in the first half of the story. So, yeah, shorthand being used because we've seen the patterns before. And it works. And as well as having this tale of psychologically prodding, if not psychologically torturing your female star in making an independent film, there are elements of this second story which verge on slapstick. Some genuinely funny moments with the interactions between the rest of the crew crammed into this tiny cabin in the middle of nowhere. Like, the assistant director has consistent intestinal problems, and she's constantly having to go off to the loo. And apparently that was based on Lawrence Michael Levine himself, who for years didn't realise he was severely lactose intolerant. So it was Lawrence Levine who was heading off and had intestinal problems. But that ends up being a recurring gag. Sarah Gaddon is constantly having coffee spilt all over her in a very slapstick way. The prompt girl, the script supervisor, has one job to do and she cannot do it. She's supposed to sort of keep up with the script and say what the next line is, and she doesn't know what she's doing at any one point. So I think it's also a comment, a satire, on making an independent film 
when the people around you aren't necessarily all that competent. So yeah, I think as as a behind-the-scenes film, a film about filmmaking, it works. But it also works as an examination of the psychology of art, particularly the psychology of women in art. It examines toxic relationships and toxic masculinity. And at every point for an audience watching this film in a non-diagetic way, the truth, the veracity of everything we are seeing is constantly up for debate. And whether any of this actually quote-unquote happened or whether it's all in Aubrey Plaza's mind, it kind of doesn't matter because the stories being told are so compelling and in a really fascinating way. I mean, this motif, this idea, this image of Aubrey Plaza in the red bathing suit walking back to the cabin becomes a recurring theme. And Sarah Gaddon, at various different points, also wears bright red clothes. In the first story, she considers putting on a bright red dress, but decides against it because you know she's pregnant and doesn't feel attractive and ends up choosing something a little bit more dowdy when she has dinner with her partner and Ori Plaza. And in the second film, when she is in the process of you know, pretend seducing Christopher Abbott and then eventually actually seducing Christopher Abbott, she's wearing a bright red blouse, which, perhaps not coincidentally, is the one that doesn't have coffee spilt all over it. So, yeah, the, these bright red clothes being constantly put on women and put into compromising situations is a recurring theme as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's got lots of stuff about art, the pursuit of art, the psychology of art, particularly for women. I can't help wondering or thinking that Sophia Takal has a lot of influence on this film, whether direct or indirect. But being married to a talented filmmaker and frequently collaborating with a talented filmmaker like that, she can't help but rub off on you, I guess. I suppose it's the same for Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. But yes, Lawrence Michael Levine and Sophia Takal are filmmakers in a collective, in a partnership, in a marriage, which does absolutely work. And for me, Black Bear is a fascinating film brilliantly acted by the three main cast members, particularly Aubrey Plaza, I think is excellent, but Christopher Abbott and Sarah Gaddon are also really, really good, and I do strongly recommend Black Bear. I think this is a film, a cerebral film, which won't be to everybody's tastes, but I do think that Black Bear is one of the best films released into the UK during April 2021. So, rather late in the day, that was my April 2021 foreplay. Promising Young Woman in the UK is available through Sky Cinema and has just been released to purchase through general streaming platforms. So no doubt a rental release will be coming into streaming relatively quickly. Black Bear is available through your streaming service of choice. 
And the Mitchells versus the Machines, Ride or Die, and Love and Monsters are all available through Netflix. The next standard episode will have a lot of stuff in it, although not quite as much as I announced recently. It turns out that I couldn't make it to the French film Jumbo at the cinemas, for reasons I will get into in the next episode. But the next standard episode will, at the very least, have reviews of the cinematic releases The Crudes 2, Deer Skin, Summer of Soul, and Nowhere Special. And now I've also got to start working on the May foreplay as well, which should be ready to go. So lots of stuff still coming, but in the meantime, all that remains for me to say is this has been Foreplay presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time, or I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.